Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Prevention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Hold the Line. It is going to be a hot episode in more ways than one because it's actually really hot in the British Isles. So it's actually literally a hot episode. I mean, all episodes of Hold the Line are hot, aren't they, in one way or another, let's be honest. But this is a particularly kind of literal hot episode because I'm kind of sweating here. There is a fan in the background, which you might be able to hear, unless my superb editing software has managed to remove the hiss. Um, But uh, yes, the, the fan is a necessity because I am going to perspire and expire if the fan is not on so i apologize in advance if the sound quality is slightly lacking for this episode but that is why um yeah so the other things we're trying to do at the moment is we are trying to move house which is challenging because it involves moving countries now i'm not going to reveal where we're moving to that's going to be a bit of a cliffhanger it's going to draw you in for future episodes isn't it so that you can discover where we're going You might also be able to hear in the background, by the way, some barking. I don't know if you can hear it. It might not be picked up by the mic, but there is quite a lot of play barking going on between Ren and Rosh in the background. So I apologize as well for that. But we have to make episodes around these inconveniences. Otherwise, I just would never make an episode if I waited for everything to be absolutely perfectly right, cool and quiet. (laughs) Hold the line. So before we get into GC training material, I just want to let you know that there's a little discount I'm offering on courses available from my website. And the website, in case you don't know yet, is forcefreegundog.com. The discount is 20% off any course of your choosing from the website. And the code that you need to put in at checkout is hot, hot, hot. So if you just put that in when you check out, you should get a discount coming off automatically. If it doesn't work, then feel free to email me so I can figure out what's going on. My email is joe at forcefreegundog.com. By the way, if you are experiencing lots of heat where you are, the course that I recommend is probably the Clicker Retrieve because most of that, if not all of that actually, is done indoors. So you don't move your retrieve outdoors until you've got it working really fluently inside in a wide variety of different objects and items. And so it's actually a perfect behavior to be training on hot days like if you live somewhere where it's really really hot and you can't be outside and your dog gets hot really quickly and they're you know panting and their tongue is reaching the ground then do the clicker retrieve course if you haven't already because it's just perfect for hot weather so or cold weather for that matter to be honest but yes yeah, so hot 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 is the code 20 percent off 
my website, forcefreegundog.com. Oh, and the last bit of information is it's available until August the 19th. So you want to make sure you check out before then. By the way, that is August the 19th in the time zone where I am. So don't leave it to the last minute. I suggest you do it August the 18th if you want to be absolutely sure that you get your discount. Hold the line. So I've got a couple of interesting emails to respond to now, and they kind of, both of them open up different subjects for conversation and discussion, which you might find useful and interesting. So the first email is from Katya. Katya says that she's getting a Vigla puppy later this year, but currently she looks after a two-year-old Vigla. And she's got a few questions based on both the idea of getting a puppy in the future, in the near future, and also what's been going on with this older dog that she's been looking after. So she has quite a lot of questions. And what I think I'm going to do is read each sort of question or or uh, related questions and then respond to them in turn rather than reading you the entire email, which might be slightly overwhelming. So the first sort of set of questions is this. She says... I've been doing your focus and attention course because it's something she struggles with a lot. This is the two-year-old Vigla. Not a priority for her owners, but I find it stressful sometimes walking her as a result. I was wondering about how to make sure she's getting exercise while also doing a lot of on-lead work with her. Should I just be cutting down food so she doesn't overeat when we are training on focus and not covering distance on traditional walkies? So there's two different subjects there. One is the sort of how to provide exercise to a dog which is not a tiny puppy it's you know two-year-old hpr which is going to be quite high energy and how do you provide that sort of dog with exercise while also providing them with the um, close control and training sort of relationship with you which a lot of a lot of the courses that i teach um, require or work on or involve And the second question involves food and how to how to manage the amount of food that you're giving when you're also using using food for training purposes quite a lot. So those are the two sort of areas or subjects, as it were, we're going to talk about. So the first the first let's go to the first subject. So the first subject is actually a nightmare scenario. I would just kind of highlight that because you want to do everything you can if you are getting a HPR puppy, which Katty, you are, you want to be doing everything you can to avoid this situation. And the situation is the situation of a sort of an older dog, sometimes adolescent, sometimes adult, which requires considerable exercise, which a lot of gun dog breeds do. And Yet, every time you take the lead off, that dog goes AWOL. They run away. They don't come back to the recall. They try and chase game. They're in the next county. You lose them for 10 minutes. You know, this is the sort of nightmare scenario. Because what do you do with a dog like that? Um, I think I might have mentioned many podcast episodes ago. I once had a GSP in one of my training classes when I lived in Brighton, which was exactly like this. And the dog could actually work really well on lead and up close and was quite engaged and even with a long line on would perform retrieves reliably and yet if we chanced it and we threw a retrieve far enough that the dog knew they were beyond the length of a long line or if we decided to do a little bit of quartering with them that would be, just be it they would be off and so they would ignore the recall and the handler could just be trailing around the south downs looking for their dog 
for a considerable time. So I think, I don't know what the outcome eventually was for that dog, but I suspect it would end up being a dog that really just could never be let off leash because it was, it was just not reliable. So you don't really want to end up in that situation. Of course, there are things you can do if you do end up in that situation, which I'll talk about in a minute, because this this dog in, in that cat is looking after is two years old. So that's that's going to be more helpful. But the first thing I want to stress is that you want to do everything you can not to end up in that situation. So what do you do? Well, when you've got a baby puppy, they don't need physical exercise. So you can just forget about all of that side of things. And you can spend your puppy's baby puppyhood and puppy puppyhood and young adolescence building lots of kind of um, reliable recalls, lots of focus on you, lots of heel work, lots of engagement with you in rural environments, and just really making sure that that is working and functioning. Ideally, you would have a an enclosed field or area where you can let your dog off the leash and they can't go any further than that field. So if they do want to ignore you, they're not going to be able to go very far and that's going to help you feel a little bit safer. And also returning to this familiar environment day after day after day is going to mean that the environment becomes less interesting to your dog. The the sort of nightmare scenario develops when people take young, it's often HBRs, but it can be spaniels, um, out into rural environments and repeatedly expose them to novel, exciting rural environments and don't interact with them very much. Just trail along behind them and allow the dog to experience all the glories and reinforcers that are out there around everywhere. Um, for the dog, they are learning what's reinforcing when they're young. They are learning, is my handler reinforcing? Is it rewarding to engage with my handler? And equally, is it rewarding to engage with the environment? Is the environment reinforcing? It's pretty obvious for most well-bred gun dogs that the environment is reinforcing. It doesn't really take much of them to learn that. But learning that you are reinforcing, the handle is reinforcing, this is not always something that you can assume they're going to, to learn unless you teach them. So you need to be spending a lot of time with a puppy and a young dog, teaching them that it pays to engage with you, relate to you, work with you, focus on you in rural locations. So that by the time your dog is an older adolescent and they really need that physical exercise that you have all that in place. You have all that training in place. They have a reliable recall. They, they stop, stop or sit when you blow your stop or sit whistle. They don't chase game. You know, you have all this in place so that it's just going to function for you in the future. So the time to be getting all that working is baby puppyhood and puppy puppyhood and <laughs> young adolescence. That's the time to really be getting all of this working. Because otherwise you can end up with a really stressful, awful um, situation on your hands when it comes to helping your your dog learn to focus on you and, and get the exercise that they need, but also focus on you. It's, it's really challenging. So one thing that I sometimes suggest to people who end up in that situation is... Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. 
Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. They need to figure out a way to provide the dog with physical exercise because it's not an option to just never give the dog exercise because the dog runs away every time they take the leash off. So they have to find a way to provide exercise for this sort of dog which has a tendency to go AWOL. And what I suggest for people like that is that they consider something like maybe jogging with their dog or maybe even cycling, bike drawing, as it were, with their dog. That would provide physical exercise, but the dog would also be on a leash and so not able to go AWOL hunting. So then they could also, this is the important bit, spend separate time working on the training and the relationship with them in rural environments so that ultimately they'll be able to import some of this physical exercise into their training and they can probably fade out the jogging or the cycling unless they particularly enjoy doing that. So that's kind of the sort of thing that I would recommend. Now there are There are parts of training which involve much more physical exercise, obviously, than others. So for all gun dogs, there's retrieving. That involves a lot of running backwards and forth. There is, um, you know, even blind retrieves. If you're teaching your dog to line to fence posts, for example, that involves running to the fence post and getting a treat. The elastic recall exercise that's part of my reliable recall um, course online is involves running the dog running over quite a considerable distance between two people so that's again going to provide exercise so that there is ways there are ways that you can that you can include exercise as part of training however if you do have a dog which has a strong um tendency to just go AWOL often at first that has to be done within the length of a long line all of that so that this doesn't happen and your dog's not going to get a great deal of exercise on a long line if they're, if they're never going longer than the length of that long line, further than the length of that long line. So that's where the kind of jogging and cycling with your dog comes in. So you just don't want to get into that situation. though. This is the thing I'm trying to stress. You want to make sure that by the time you get to your dog to be that age, that you've built that relationship with them. You don't want to take your young HPR out just before you've built a relationship with them looking for birds or just letting them go hunting and exploring and running in different rural environments every day. That's just not a great thing. You want to be keeping things very controlled, working on your relationship with them. And you want to have one or two preferably contained, relatively contained areas, fields maybe, where you go with your young dog and work on this stuff. So that because you're returning to the same place, the dog is going to kind of get habituated to that place a little bit. 
And once you've done that with one field or two fields, you then added another field and then you added another field until you get to the point where you can just go to any field and have your dog focus on you and work with you. So that's kind of, you know, the way that I think about it. I like to do with young dogs what I call walking, doing the rounds, as it were. I know it sounds a bit like what doctors do in the hospital. They do the rounds when they go around patients, don't they? But um, this is what I do in the field. So when, I, when I've got my one sort of confined field, then if I have my little puppy, I will walk around and around in circles around this field and I will be working on different things. So I might do a little bit of heel work and then release the puppy and I'll walk on a little bit more around the field, recall the puppy to me, give the puppy a taste to treat and I don't know, do a baby, baby, five second puppy sit stay, release the puppy, walk on around the field and wait for the puppy to stop and look at me. This is part of my um, remote stop course wait for the puppy to stop still click or mark the moment the puppy is standing still and then throw the reinforcer beyond the puppy then walk on a little bit further call the puppy to me reinforce the recall do some um click a retrieve work by putting the retrieve on the floor at their feet and getting them to sort of touch the retrieve many times in a row release the puppy after a minute or two of that walk on around the field a little bit more so basically we're just doing all these basic skills one after another while we meander around the field and in between the puppy is sniffing stuff and exploring stuff and being a puppy really but there's nothing very interesting in this field because usually as soon as i've arrived (laughs) any game that's in the fields has detected my presence and run away so the puppy is not likely to find anything and have a chase and because we're walking around around in circles we're covering the same area so sometimes if you've got a pup which finds the environment really interesting the first lap around the field that they might find it more difficult to concentrate on me and I might reduce the criteria, reduce what I'm asking for because I know that they're struggling a little bit with the environment and could keep them on a long line if I wanted. And, you know, just practice the recall by taking hold of a long line if they ignore me and gently removing them from what's distracting them. So basically, the second time around the field, they've seen it all once before. They've already explored it all. I'm becoming more interesting now by comparison. The third time around the field... God, it's all pretty boring now. We've sniffed everything there is to sniff. And, you know, I really want to do some work now. Can we please do some work? The fourth time around the field, we just want to keep working and so on and so forth. So I find doing the rounds, as I call it, a really great thing to be doing with a little pup. So, um, and I just be doing little tiny, very short clips of training every time I pause while I'm walking around the field and kind of integrating that. And what's also happening in this process is that we're outside in a rural environment and we're practicing engaging with me, engaging with the environment, engaging with me, engaging with the environment. And that is the skill that you want your gun dog to have. You want your gun dog, you want to weave yourself into your dog's interest in the environment. You have to be included in that. You have to be part of that. The relationship is not between your dog and the environment. The relationship is your dog, you, and the environment. There's a there's three things in this relationship in order for it to be a functioning, working relationship in the future. You have to have you, your dog, and the environment woven together. And for me, the best way to do that is to alternate and switch and alternate and switch between one and the other and build the muscles in the dog's brain that, that involve engaging with and disengaging with each of these three things while you do the rounds. So there we go. Um, yeah, so um, let's go back. To, sorry, Cassie, we've kind of gone down a little rabbit hole as it were there. So um, still it's useful. So 
yeah, how to get exercise while also doing a lot of on lead work with her. So I think we've covered that now. Um, sometimes you have to get a little creative with that one, but your ultimate goal is to build enough focus and reliability and enough training that you can then provide exercise within I'm going to interrupt this fibreless discussion to bring you today's whistle pause. The whistle pause is where an ad break would usually be, but I don't have an ad break. I just have me and my whistle, my trusty T12, on which I'm going to play you a tune. The sad thing about my whistle at the moment is that it's dying a little bit, so bits of plastic have broken off. So it will only blow if I blow it really loudly, then a note will come out. Otherwise, it's this kind of whispery, hoarse, airy, breathy noise. So I've got another whistle on order, and I'd like to reassure you that the, the whistle pause will improve in quality in future episodes. Now, the reason we don't have an ad break here and you have this whistle pause instead is because I don't have a sponsor. I don't want a sponsor because I want to be completely free to recommend the products I want to recommend and I don't want to have to recommend a product that I don't believe in or love in order to get sponsorship. So there are some ways you can support me though because otherwise it is just me making this podcast. So if you like this podcast, there are some simple things and free things that you can do. One is to share it and to tell other people about it and to post it on social media and to promote it whenever you can. The other thing you can do will benefit you as well, I hope. You can check out some of my courses, my online platform, forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon, wherever you live. That is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. You're training. So the, so, the, so the goal, the ultimate goal is that your dog gets exercise from running retrieves. Your dog gets exercise from practicing quartering um, and, you know, recalls. So, so basically your, your, your physical exercise and your mental exercise, the dog is getting all of this together within training. So there's no need for walks. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, walks take time. Who's got time in today's world to provide a 45-minute walk and 45 minutes of training every day? That's considerable. Why not provide the physical exercise and the mental exercise which your dog would get on a walk within training so that you just need to do one of those two things? To me, that just is is obvious. So it does involve a bit more prep for the for you, the handler, because you have to think about where you're going to go and what you're going to do and what training your dog needs. But in terms of clock time, it doesn't take any more time out of your day to go and train your dog instead of just walking your dog. Remember, walking your dog usually involves just plodding along behind your dog while your dog investigates the environment. And that is a recipe for disaster for a lot of young Spaniels and HBRs. So I highly recommend you try and avoid that. So the other the other subject that is in this question here is about food and how to work with food. So the first thing I would say is in terms of a baby puppy and working with food, you want to listen back to my previous episode here. I was talking about Ren, my GSP pup, because 
I cover in that episode how I use food with baby puppies when we're doing the training at home. So that's definitely relevant for you getting your, your Vizsla puppy. And in terms of using the food once you move away from the house with, a, with an older dog, yeah, you probably do need to cut down their, their you know, mealtime food a little bit so that you can give them food for training sessions away from the house. I still try to make sure that the food that I'm using for training is is not terrible. Like I wouldn't want to use like cheap, crappy pet shop bought um, treats. By the way, I say cheap, but they actually cost more than meat, for example. <laughs> so yeah, I, I make sure you're feeding something which is, you know, you can feed a uh, heart or liver or kidney, just boil it up, chop it up into little bits. You can feed any kind of meat, chop it up into little bits, cheddar. Um, so there's lots of stuff you can feed, which is healthy, relatively healthy. It may not be balanced, but it's healthy in terms of what it is. So I'd recommend that you feed that sort of stuff when you're training away from the house. So your other question, you said the two-year-old dog still pees in the house. She's highly anxious and appears to be a release thing after praise. How do you handle this so we don't end up cleaning it up as it's pretty frequent and also happens with her owners? So the type of um, urination that you're describing there is what we call submissive urination. So it's basically the dog is, is as you say, anxious and is having a wee to sort of appease you um, and it is experiencing probably social pressure from you or the owners and it's having a wee to kind of um in the dog's eyes fix that um and say you know i'm just a little puppy please don't you know sometimes they just feel a bit intimidated by people leaning over them or people giving them too much attention so um how would you fix it the best thing to do is to make the least deal of it possible what you don't want to do is go oh no you're having a wee oh no oh oh you know this kind of thing because that's just that's that's going to make it worse. That's just going to be a big, you know, you're making even more noise. You're often leaning over the dog. You're showing distress. You're, you know, that's just going to make a dog want to do more submissive urination, not less. So I know it's really difficult in human terms, but you really just want to not react at all if you can manage to to, to do that. You just want to just quietly to yourself go, oh no, she's had a wee and just not react in any way that dog can detect. The other thing you can do, Obviously, it sucks a bit to keep cleaning up wee in the house is to make sure that anytime the dog is greeting new people or if you've, um, you know, you're letting the dog greet a family member or something that you just want it to happen outside the house. So if the dog does this and has a wee, you just don't have it in the house. It happens outside. If you know that someone's coming around, you might take the dog out for a wee before the people come around. It doesn't always stop it. And sometimes they do have a little sprinkle, even if they're even if they've just emptied their bladder, they can summon up a few drops to do to do this. Um, so yeah, but the, the most important thing is that you don't make a big deal because if you make a big deal, you are just increasing the dog's need to do this submissive urination because you're kind of increasing the social pressure on the dog. So you just want to ignore it and pretend that it hasn't happened at all. I would say that by two years old, it's pretty unusual for a dog to still be doing this. Most dogs grow out of this. It's quite common in little puppies. And as they get older, they usually stop doing it. And the dogs which continue to do it are usually the dogs who have owners that are making a big deal of it and going, oh no, why are you having a wee? And reacting to it. So when that starts to happen, that just increases the dog's need to appease you. And the whole thing just, just goes around in some sort of vicious circle. So it's really important that you're ignoring it. This is not a gun dog training related question though. So let's move on. 
Um, once we have a puppy ourselves, which course would you start with? Or is it really a case of putting it all together at once? So I think you're referring to my courses on my website. So the courses really to start with, if you have a puppy or, as I said, the reliable recall course, that is just the one you want to get. Because if your puppy's got a reliable recall, they're going to earn their freedom in future. And that is just essential. So the reliable recall. I'd also say that the heel course is pretty important as well, because a lot of people don't want to let their pup grow into bad habits and end up towing them around everywhere. So so the heel course too, but you're not going to expect perfect heel work from your puppy in all situations when they're like eight weeks old, but it's important to kind of get that chugging along because it is a difficult behavior heel work. So you want to start it early. Then on the topic of exercise, obviously less of an issue with a tiny puppy, but am I right in thinking we need to learn the release to environment and obviously the recall cues before we should be doing any kind of free roaming? And if so, how do I make sure the puppy gets the socialization and mix of environments she or he needs in the early days? Yeah, so basically, the most important thing, let's let's get this right in the order in which it should happen. So socialization and exposure to different environments. This is what you want to prioritize when you have a baby puppy within the socialization period. Bearing in mind, the socialization period starts to end at 12 weeks old and by the age of 14 weeks old is pretty over. That's not a long period of time. So during that time, you are prioritizing your puppies just taking in the world. So you're not going to be going out with your puppy. And as I just talked about working on your puppy looking at you, for example, because if your puppy's looking at you, they're not going to see the fire truck drive by. If your puppy's looking at you, they're not going to see the person in a wheelchair passing behind them. They're not going to see the person with a walking stick. They're not going to notice the other dog on the other side of the road. So the reason that you don't want to be doing lots of pay attention to me, engage with me, focus on me in lots of different environments with a puppy that's within the socialization period is that you want your puppy to be taking all that in and they need to be paying attention to it to be able to take it in. So, you know, you don't want your pup to be worried about what they're looking at. You just want them to be like a little sponge. You just want them to be looking at it and noticing it. And you want stuff to be going on around them and they're just okay with it. And, you know, they may not even be looking directly at it, but it's in their peripheral vision and they're not just staring at you all the time. So that's the priority with a little puppy. Now, once you get out of the socialization period, that is the time to begin to be working on paying attention to you in lots of different environments. So there's kind of like a, a shift for me. There's a shift from when the socialization period ends at, onwards. So there's a transition and in terms of the recall, yeah, you absolutely need to have a reliable recall before you have your puppy going off leash. Now, the good thing is that baby puppies are not going to run 500 yards away from you because they don't have the independence or probably the legs or physical ability to be to be doing that. So that's why it's important you're spending this time working on your recall so that when they do have the independence and the physical ability to do it, you have that recall functioning. So you can also have your pup, of course, trailing a puppy house line and then a long line when they get a bit bigger so that you can grab hold of that if you need to. So I think we've kind of covered all of your questions there, Katya, and I hope that helps. Hold the line. So I just want to give a little shout out to Karen Pryor's new course, which is the Snake Avoidance course. So we had someone, actually a couple of people um, over the time the podcast has been running, asked me about snake avoidance training using force-free methods. And we don't really have 
an issue with snakes where I live. So this is not something that I have to deal with and that I can really help people with or give you advice on. So when I saw that Karen Pryor were running this course on snake avoidance, I thought, wow, loads of people are going to be really interested in that. So I just don't want people to miss it because this might be a fantastic opportunity. So it's going to be run by Ken Ramirez and it's um, actually enrolling today, July 20th. It's just open for enrollment. So I'm sure the sort of active participant place is going to go really quickly, but I believe there are also observer places. So you definitely want to check it out. So it's um, snake avoidance training and it's with Ken Ramirez and you can check it out if you go to karenpryoracademy.com and then click on live classes on the drop down menu and you'll find some more information about it. It's a six week online course and enrollment opens today. I have no connection with this course and I'm not going to profit from it and I'm not being paid to recommend it. And actually I haven't done it and I can't tell you from my own experience that it's good, but it does sound like it's going to be good and like it's something which is sorely needed by the Gundog community in locations where there are snakes. So check it out, com under live classes. Hold the line. So I've got another email here from someone who wants some advice. And I think this email describes a particular situation and is looking for tips or guidance on how to progress. So the email goes, um, I attended a fun gundog workshop recently as part of my ongoing search for in-person training. I'm looking for feedback on my handling generally, any gundog specific advice, plus the chance to work around other dogs. This session was run by non-Gundog specific people who train extensively and successfully in working trials, etc., and seemed to be aimed at beginners. None of the other dogs had reliable retrieves, for example. In some ways, my dog was more advanced, by which I mean he has more experience of Gundog handling, mark retrieves, and so on. I found it a bit frustrating to go back to basics, holding collar and expecting dog to pull into it, then immediate release to a throw and retrieve item, when we normally work on a sit, steady to throw, and then release or heal away, then send to retrieve, etc., and I think my dog found it pretty confusing too. We've worked hard on giving to collar pressure and not pulling into it and not expecting him to assume thrown items are for him. He's not perfect at this stuff by any stretch, but it's one of our ongoing goals. Mark retrieves into light cover are one of his favorite things to do, super focused and intense. Yet in this setup, you would have thought he had never done one before. I did get a couple of useful points of feedback on my handling and it was good to practice focus and relaxation around other dogs in a new space but I feel torn in terms of whether it's worth going back. I like training things properly, not because I could ever work or compete, but because I like learning and training in small steps, and so do my dogs, and we are aiming for the Gundog Club grades. So I feel like it was reasonable that my dog struggled to adapt, and I don't think it means his training is shaky. I'm leaning towards not going back, as I think it will confuse him and me, even though it is close, about an hour's travel. Thanks for any thoughts. So, yeah, I can see why this is a difficult situation. So... I think the situation to talk about is it's partly about the pros and cons of group classes. And it's also partly about the people running the classes and where they're coming from and whether that fits with where you're coming from and your approach to training as well. Those are the two things to consider. So the main advantage that I can see for group classes is getting your dog used to being around other dogs and people and just relaxing into that environment and accepting that environment as completely normal and not as anything to get worked up about in any way. So that was kind of the main <laughs> the main advantage. 
I think also something about the different locations that your dog can be exposed to. If you go to classes that are held in different places, you're kind of getting some more generalization happening there as well, because everything is going to be shifting around. And all of this is going to be useful when it comes to competing with your dog as well. So the more different locations, the more likely your dog is able to be to be to focus on you in whatever location it is that you turn up for a competition or assessment. So so that's kind of the main the main pros. Now the difficulty comes, I think, when when people don't understand where you're coming from and what training that you've done before rocking up at the class. So there's a there's a tendency for trainers not to find out any of that and to kind of just assume that people haven't done anything or if they have done something they've done stuff wrong quote unquote and to just tell you to do everything the way that they do it and that may not be useful for you or your dog particularly if you have different goals or you've done previous training which might conflict with what they're showing you and I think it's important to to recognize that the most important thing for the dog is consistency and clarity and that there are many different ways that you can be consistent and clear. There are many different um you know scenarios or, or ways that we can help the dog understand things but that you know having the dog raised within our system as it were and then suddenly told to do something completely different by people that we're training with is not going to result in a dog that has clarity over what is required. In fact, it's going to result probably in a confused dog who underperforms. So I've been in this situation myself in group training classes, and I I fully understand both the allure of wanting to train with other people and be part of something and be sociable and, you know, have your dog out in in a group environment and yet also be a bit disappointed by the standard of the training or the way that things are not being split into small manageable steps or the kind of lack of clarifying where you are with the dog first and what you want to get out of the the training situation. So I think a good trainer will always kind of talk to you first and find out what your dog can do, what you want to work on and, you know, take it from there and, and kind of in some ways, you know, try and meet your dog's needs within a group class. And that is, that is another difficulty, which it's worth touching on too, when you're running a, a group class, it's very difficult because you've got multiple different dogs and they might have very differing needs. And it's very hard to meet those needs all at once. The The options are to try to teach a whole class altogether, in which case what one dog needs might conflict with what another dog needs. For example, if you want to work on marking and you've got your dogs all sitting there lined up um, looking at a mark, only one dog can get that retrieve. Only one dog that marks well, that remains fixed and located and staring at the the location of fall, only one dog can be sent each time. All the other dogs are going to be disappointed and they're not going to get that retrieve. They might get, you know, a leave cue, an alternative treat, but that's, for many dogs, not going to be a substitute to getting the thing they saw fly through the air. So that's an example of where it can be a little challenging sometimes, particularly for young or inexperienced dogs to manage frustration levels in that environment. So Group classes are difficult because the other way that you can run things is you can take people one at a time and work with them one-to-one, one at a time. But then that means you've got the rest of the class kind of hanging around doing nothing or standing there and watching. And sometimes that can be quite a lot of standing there and watching if you've got like eight dogs in a class. So there isn't an ideal way to to do things. And it's, it's not that group classes are good or group classes are bad. It's very much just about weighing up the pros and the cons and making sure that 
the overall um, package that you're taking away with your dog is something that is useful and, and helpful. So, yeah, I think that that's what I should say there. I mean, it sounds like you're coming from a position where you know a lot about learning theory, you know about, a lot about how dogs learn and think, and you understand that things need to be split into small manageable steps, that you've got a training plan. And unfortunately, that's not where many kind of um, community-based dog training organizations are. They often are still in the realm of just kind of smooshing things together and lumping rather than splitting. And, you know, it's it, there's, sometimes there can be a bit of a conflict. Um, and you also get some established trainers who have done things their way and it's worked for them. And they find it really difficult to accept that a different way of doing things might work for someone else and might be equally valid. And sometimes they can put pressure on you to to do things their exact way when you want to do things a little bit differently for whatever reason you, you have that you, you want to do things differently. And there can be just conflict in that as well. So it's always worth having a conversation. And if you do feel that the, the, the trainers are able to listen to you and to take on what you need, then that's good. Maybe you can achieve something. For example, you might want to just explain to the trainers that you, you've already progressed beyond the stage and you think your dog's being confused by being expected to just run in on retrieves. And you might just ask for something a little bit different and see if they can offer you that. And if not, and if they insist on you doing things the way that they're doing them, then that might be an indication that this class isn't isn't for you. So I hope that that helps you, you somehow. I mean, the other thing is that, as I said, you've got to think about whether your dog can relax around other dogs. But it does sound like your dog didn't really struggle with that part of the group experience. And so I don't know whether that's a reason to return back to this class, particularly this specific class. So I hope that helps and gives you some things to think about. And in terms of group training generally, I would just say that it's important that you don't plunge young or adolescent dogs that may have a tendency towards over arousal into group classes too soon. Because I tend to find, you know, especially if they're mainstream classes, that's when people are told to punish their dogs or trainers come over with slip leads and jerk your dog around because they don't like to see what they perceive as an out of control dog. So ideally you want to achieve at least the rudiments and basics of control before you go along to a conventional gun dog training class. Because if you turn up with a dog which can walk at heel, sit at heel, be relatively calm when other dogs are working and do a basic seam retrieve to hand. If you can just have all that in place before you ever go near a training class, your, your dog will probably never receive punishment or be at risk of receiving punishment. Whereas if you turn up with a an adolescent boisterous dog straining away on the end of a leash, pulling and potentially barking or whining, then that's when you may incur people approaching you and telling you to correct your dog and that sort of thing. So that would be my most important tip for anyone contemplating going into a, a group training class. I think I've waffled along enough for this episode, everybody. So yeah, I just want to remind you that there is that discount available on my website, forcefreegundog.com, 20% off any training course of your choosing. And the discount code that you need is hot, 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 and it expires on August the 19th. So make sure you check out before them. So that's all for now, everybody. And I look forward to chatting with you all again soon. Oh,